Galatians 1, 11 to 24. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and had called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia, and again I returned to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brothers. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still not known by sight to the churches of Christ in Judea. Then they only heard it said, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God. Because of me. The first thing I want us to notice here in Galatians 1 is the similarity between verse 1 and verse 12. In verse 1, Paul defends his apostleship. Paul, an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Then in verse 12, he defends his gospel with similar words. I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul's apostleship is not from man, and his gospel is not from man. On the contrary, the risen Christ appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus and commissioned him to be an apostle and revealed to him his gospel. And those two verses... I think, are similar because for Paul, his apostleship and his gospel stand and fall together. If Paul was no apostle, then his claim to authority and truth collapses. And if his gospel was a concoction of a human mind, then his claim to apostleship is forfeited. Now, why is Paul so defensive here at the very outset of this book? I think verse 7 that we looked at last week gives us the answer. It says, there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel. There's some false teachers in the churches of Galatia. And in order to change the gospel, they are calling Paul into question. They are discrediting Paul. Evidently, and it doesn't take too much reading between the lines in this book to see how they were going about it. They were evidently calling into question Paul's apostleship, saying that it really doesn't 
stand on the same level as the apostles in Jerusalem, like Peter, James, and John. We can see in chapter 5, verse 2, that these false teachers, whoever they were, were demanding that the Christians be circumcised if they were going to be justified and sanctified. And we can see in chapter 4, verse 10, that they were demanding that they go back to the old feasts of the year in the Jewish calendar. So it's not far off to say they were Jewish Christians, Christians in the loose sense of the word. And very likely, they were people who had come from Jerusalem. I get that from chapter 2, verse 12, where it looks as if people go out from Jerusalem who know James and try to straighten out the false teaching that Paul gets messed up everywhere. And evidently, what they're saying is this. Paul was a Johnny-come-lately to the apostolic band. He had been tutored by the uh, original 12, and then he had gone off by himself to start churches and had botched it, had gotten the gospel all wrong because he had been depending on man and was a second-hander at best. And they now are taking their trek up through the churches of Galatia and setting the people straight so that they can avoid the pitfalls of the apostle Paul. I'm going to call these people from now on Judaizers. That's the word used for them in everything that's written about Galatia. Just because they are people who are trying to pull back the church from its freedom from circumcision and the feasts to a Jewish performance of those acts in order to be saved. Paul may claim, they say, to be an apostle, but he's really not one. He may claim to have the pure gospel, but it's really a perverted one, we have come from the true gospels down there in Jerusalem, and we will set him straight. Now, that seems to be the situation that makes sense out of verse 1. My apostleship is not from man. In verse 12, my gospel is not from man. He's defending himself against a discrediting of his apostleship, and he's defending himself against the discrediting of his gospel. Notice verse 12 now is an argument for verse 11. Verse 11 says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not man's gospel, or literally, not according to man. For I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. In verse 12, Paul is arguing for what he said in verse 11. This is not my own private version of the gospel. I didn't pick it up secondhand from the Jerusalem apostles and then get it all goofed up. My gospel is not from man at all. Now, what does that mean? It is not according to man. First, I think it means it didn't originate with man. No human made it up and then laid it on the world. It came from the heart and mind of God by way of revelation to the apostles in Jerusalem and then to Paul. Paul said in Romans 1, 1, I am Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Gospel of God, not the gospel of man. Paul's gospel is from God, not man. And I think the second thing that he means in verse 11 when he says 
that his gospel is not according to man is that it doesn't square with ordinary human inclinations. I think he's implying that the distortion that the gospel was receiving among the Judaizers was precisely to make it according to man's desires. I get that from Galatians chapter 6, verse 12, where he says about these false teachers, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh that would compel you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not persecute, be persecuted for the gospel of Christ. In other words, their version of the gospel is precisely according to man. It squares with what they want, namely to have their flesh and its self-reliance exalted and to have their fear of persecution satisfied. It catered to their self-assertive, self-reliant yearnings and therefore was according to man. And Paul says, my gospel did not originate with man and it doesn't square with what ordinary fallen people like. The gospel comes on as something distasteful to a fallen human. Changes have to be made in the heart before the gospel gets agreed to. Now let's pause for a moment here and just let what we've seen soak in and some of its implications hit us. Authority and truth are the issue here, right? He's not talking about the content of the gospel. He's talking about his authority and the truth of his message. Two messages are vying for the Galatians' hearts and for ours. The Judaizers' message that appeals to the flesh and Paul's message that crucifies the flesh. And verses um, 8 and 9, as we saw last week, said eternity hangs on that choice. Cursing and blessing. Paul is forcing the issue of truth. And I want to stress that and really press that this morning because I think the culture in which we live does not force the issue of truth. It does just the opposite. It communicates that truth doesn't matter. Opinions are the ultimate thing. Everywhere you turn in the media today, or in your own personal life, what you find is a welter of opinions about everything. Everybody's got a gospel. Everybody's got an idea of what the good life is. And they'll lay it on you as though it were absolute truth. It might be sex over 60, or the joy of jogging, or organic dieting, or the power of self-assertion. Or a hundred other things you hear people interviewed for on the radio. And they give it out as gospel. The world is rife with opinions about the good life. But how often do you hear a solid statement about the basis of those opinions? Who cares? about truth on the radio and on television and in the newspaper. Ultimate truth that gives plausibility from the depths to the opinions that are 
growing off the tops of the tree branches. When was the last time you heard someone make an effort to clarify and defend his foundational world view that allows him to claim plausibility for all the opinions he's slinging out on the world? Does anybody care to do that today? I think most people think that's sort of a stage you go through at about the age 19 or 20 And you get over it after a couple of philosophy classes uh, and a few sleepless nights. You grow up into the real world where you've got to make a living and you just don't worry about ultimate questions of truth anymore. That's not the agenda of real life. Right? Let it not be so among the people at Bethlehem. At least for us, let the question of truth matter. It must not sit well with us that people give out their opinions with no concern for whether they conform to ultimate reality or not. That must bother us. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Which means at least you bring truth into every situation. A concern for truth. You are the salt of the earth. And you know what the tang of the seasoning of that salt is? How do you know? How do you know? That's the tang. When you come into a group, you always sort of needle under and want to know, how can you say that? On what basis do you claim such a thing? Now, I know that this kind of talk is threatening because it sounds like I'm demanding from everybody that they become high-powered intellectuals that have to have answers for every question that comes your way about your faith. Now, I am not here to discourage you or say that that's what the ideal in life is. On the contrary, I want to encourage you, the most ordinary thinkers among you, that you are in a far better position in relation to the world than you think you are. We have let the world intimidate us far too long. Now, the world knows that Christians sort of somehow make a claim to be in touch with ultimate reality. And they hate that. That is very offensive. It's proud. It's arrogant, they say, of Christians to think that they are somehow in tune with something ultimate. And when they say something that might be absolutely true and cause other people to have to agree, that means that whenever you start making a claim that flows out of your Christian commitment, they are usually going to begin to do something to you that they never do to themselves, and that is ask you hard, critical questions about your philosophy of life. Now, that's okay. I do not criticize that, nor do I want you to spurn those questions or run from them. I think we ought to try our best to give an account 
for why we believe what we believe. But here's a suggestion that I think will keep you from feeling that the world's got it all together intellectually. And I'm the only one who's got questions and difficulties, which is the impression we sometimes feel as soon as we start getting queried by anybody. Here's my suggestion. Make sure that if you are probed, that is, if your view of life, your concept of of truth and reality is probed, that you turn the tables and start probing about their view of truth and life and reality. And if they start going at the roots and the basis, asking you, how do you know, give me proof, it's all right. Just make sure that just as much you start going for the roots and asking them, how do you know? Give me proof for your philosophy of life, too. And what you'll find, I think, is that as a Christian, your grasp of reality, all things considered, is more comprehensive and more coherent than the world's view. Most unbelievers, except for a a very little, teeny subculture of intellectuals that you hardly ever run into unless you go to university, only, only a little subculture asks those kinds of ultimate questions. Most unbelievers have never thought through the ultimate issues of life, but they will come on against your concept with gangbusters. And all I'm saying is that with your Christian, unchristian friends, just ask that they play fair. Just ask that they stop treating you unfairly. That is, they come down out of the grandstands of agnosticism and indifference where they're taking little shots at your life commitments on which everything hangs and play with you. Get serious about the questions of ultimate life instead of playing games while they don't have any view of life themselves to put over against yours. Let them come down, state their commitments, give their underlying philosophy of life and their evidences. And what you will find is that they join you in your difficulties. We're all in the same boat. It's hard to know what's true. It's hard to determine evidences that then are so valid everybody should be convinced. That's not easy. And we've got to quit letting the world play as if they're outside the arena. We're the only ones struggling to find what's true and real in the world. My own conviction is that what you will find is the confirmation that the best reason for being a Christian is that all things considered, your view of life takes into account more reality and makes more sense of what is than any view that can be put over against it. So, be the light of the world. Bring the question of truth into every situation where the mounting up of opinion starts to darken the horizon. Now, back to the text. And this follows right from what we've just been saying. Is Paul now, having said 
authority, mine, authority Judaizers, putting them as an either or, is he now just going to say, close your eyes and shoot in the dark? Choose whichever one you have a feeling for. Or is Paul going to argue his case for why his apostleship should be accepted and not the Judaizers' claims? And I think verses 13 to 24 are inescapably argumentative. They're clearly intended to show that he believes there is a solid basis for opting for belief in his revelation. And that's what we want to look at for the rest of our time. How does he argue in verses 13 to 24? Remember now, verse 12 said, the gospel had come to Paul by revelation of Jesus Christ. He was, he was claiming something utterly audacious. I mean, just, just let this hit you. He was saying, the risen Christ appeared to me on the Damascus road, verified his life, commissioned me to be an apostle, revealed to me his gospel. It's an amazing claim. And then... He proceeds to give his evidence. Verses 13 and 14 recount, first of all, his anti-Christian pre-conversion days. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. Now, note right there, he begins with common ground. He's not trying to put over on them something they haven't heard about and can't check up on. You've heard of my former life in Judaism. How I persecuted the church of God violently, tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Negatively, he says, I hated the church. I ravaged the church. Acts 9 says he threw men and women into jail and breathed out murders and threats against the church. Positively, he says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. There wasn't anybody who knew the traditions like I knew the traditions. I could quote Torah by heart from morning to night. I was the Jew among my age. I knew the traditions of the fathers and loved them with a passion that did not brook any compromise. And then along came Peter and the apostles on Pentecost and they started preaching. And you know what they preached? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And Paul listened. And you know what he felt? Threat. You mean you don't have to be circumcised anymore? You mean the feast days of the Holy Fathers mean not have to be committed and kept? He hated it. His whole life was called into question. If the Christians are right, my standing as a Pharisee means nothing. The meaning of my life is zilch. And he attacked it with all his might. He went after the church with flaming zeal. And now the question for us is, why did he tell that to them? Why did he say that? What, what function does that have in his letter to the Galatians? Notice that verse 13 begins with the word for. There's that little key argumentative word. Here comes a reason, an argument. Now, how does the argument work? I think verses 22 to 24 give us a clue. 
Let's read that. Here he is three years after his conversion. And he says, I was still not known by sight to the churches of Christ in Judea. They only heard it said, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Paul closes the unit that we're talking about here in 11 to 24 by pointing out the complete and astonishing conversion, the 180 degree turnaround that he had gone through from persecutor to preacher, from one who heard in the Christian message a threat to his own life, to one who was willing to see in the gospel something that blew his Phariseeism to smithereens and still accepted it and was willing to die for it. Now, what happened? What in the world happened? How do you account for this? Those two effects are verifiable. We must find a cause. To be more precise, we need to ask with Paul, was that which revolutionized my life a work of man or a work of God? That's what verse 1 was talking about. That's what verse 12 was talking about. Did Paul, this is the alternative explanation that the Judaizers were laying on the church. Did Paul somehow in those early days of zeal sort of get enamored by the apostolic preaching and sort of drift over, become an understudy and a disciple Study for a few years with the disciples or the apostles and then head off, start founding churches and get the thing all botched. Is that a plausible explanation of what's happened? Or did Jesus Christ, alive from the dead, come to Paul on the Damascus road, reveal his reality and show what the gospel is and commission him to preach? Those are the two options Paul lays before the church. So the reason Paul describes his pre-conversion life in verses 13 and 14 is to show how utterly improbable it is that he could somehow have been drift, had been uh, brought over into the ranks of the apostles by the influence of men. The apostles were his arch enemies. He hated them and he hated the gospel. And he argues that there's only one adequate explanation for how he could devote his life now to a Christ that he hated and how he could preach a gospel that overturned his whole life of Pharisaic pride. And that explanation is given in verse 15. When he who had set me apart before I was born and had called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul's explanation is that Christ appeared to him. And Christ said, according to Acts, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you to serve and bear witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I send you to open the eyes of the blind that they might turn from darkness to light, 
from the power of Satan to God. That was the commission that Paul said he heard on the Damascus Road. Every effect must have a cause. And Paul is arguing, it looks like to me, from the effect back to the cause. He's saying, look, my pre-conversion days were just full of persecution and hate. My post-conversion days are full of passion for the very gospel that meant the end of my life. On what basis will you account for that, Galatians? He knew he'd seen the risen Christ. What could he say? What could he say to help them verify that experience? He did the only thing he could do. He did the thing we always do when we're trying to verify experiences we've had. He pointed to the evidences of its effects. And they are remarkable indeed. And I believe they are remarkable enough that they ought to persuade the Galatians and us that the explanation for how Paul came to preach the gospel is that Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus Road. And therefore, verse 11 stands solid. My gospel is not man's gospel. It is not according to man. And then very briefly to wrap it up. How does he he tightens this this. Even further, verse 16, don't get the idea, he says, that when Jesus appeared to me on the Damascus road, he said, Go down there for three years and study with the apostles. And after you've studied with them for three years, then you'll be fit to get out and establish churches. Just the opposite, he says. When I was converted, I didn't consult with flesh and blood. Instead, I didn't go study with the apostles. I went to Arabia. Then I came back to Damascus. Then after three years in which his gospel took definitive shape. Then I went up to Jerusalem, saw Peter for 15 days, saw James, saw none of the other apostles. And then I took off, wasn't known by anybody, and went for 14 years to Syria and Cilicia. Now, the point here is this. Three years thinking, meditating, praying, and ministering. Fifteen days with the Apostle Peter to get to know him. He says, is it really plausible that the Judaizers claim that I was an understudy of the apostles and really only a, a Johnny come lately to the apostolic band and a second rate, second hander of an apostle? Will that stand? Go to Damascus and ask them. Go to the apostles and ask them how much time I spent with them. And then even more in verse 22 Paul says that the churches in Judea didn't know him personally. Why does he say that? I think the point there is if I had been an understudy of the apostles, if I had come in late, that's exactly where they would have put me to work in the churches of Judea where they were residing. They don't even know me. In other words, my apostleship, dear Galatians, is independent. It came from Jesus Christ, and there is no other explanation that can account for my life than that I have seen the risen Lord. My apostleship is not from men, verse 1. My gospel is not from men, verse 12. My gospel and my apostleship are from God. Believe me. Now I want to close with a story from Jesus' life. To apply this to our situation here. In the last week of his life, Jesus was uh, teaching and preaching with great authority, like Paul. 
And the elders and the chief priests came up to him and said, Whence do you have this authority? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus said, I'll ask you a question. And if you will answer me, I'll tell you who gave me this authority. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from man? Tell me. Now, if, if you have the faith I do, Jesus is standing here at my elbow. And I just bring him here to these microphones. And here's the way he translates that for you. He says, the gospel which Paul preaches. Is it from heaven or is it from man? And the elders and the chief priests went away and they said, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why didn't you believe? And if we say from man, we're afraid of the people because they think he's a prophet. So they said, we don't know. We don't know. Went up to the grandstands of agnosticism and indifference. And Jesus said, well, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to answer your questions. I don't, I don't talk to people like that. God will not be barraged by pea shooters from the grandstands of indifference and agnosticism. And his question to us this morning is very simply, very forthrightly, very eternally. The gospel which Paul preaches, salvation by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of God. Is it from heaven? Or is it from man? Let us pray. Oh God, there are people in this room who have a question for you. And until you answer that question for them, they won't reckon with the gospel. Oh Christ, help them to see that Jesus has given strong evidences for his truth and beauty. And that they stand before an either or this morning. Is it from heaven or is it from man? Belief and unbelief. And my prayer is that every person who hears me now will fall on his or her knees in their hearts and say, it is of God. Guard us, I pray, from being almost persuaded. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen.